Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Primate Cast. Welcome back. So, Chris, I think today you and I are both really excited to be able to present to people a series of interviews that we conducted at this year's 24th Congress of the International Primatological Society. That's right. We just got back last week from Cancun, Mexico, where the conference was held. We were in Mexico, and we were there representing Kyoto University as well as SciCASP, mm-hmm. and we had an exhibit in the exhibit hall as well. Right. So the purpose of that exhibit uh, was to introduce people to SciCASP in case they had students that might be interested in coming, and also to set up our mobile podcasting studio. Yeah, and that was really fun. So we got a lot of interest, I think, people walking by. We had a really central location, which was fortunate, and we had a lot of people asking us, so what's this all about? Mm-hmm. So what was it all about? Well, we tried to get the word out and let people know that if they wanted to sit down with us, uh, we could do a short interview with them and see what they were up to at the conference and also what they were working on um, with their with their primate species. Yeah, so usually we, we get these interviews when people come to PRI, but this was a nice opportunity for us actually to get further out there and uh, try and try and you know, get people into our mobile studio, I guess you could call it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we did that. In the end, we had about seven interviews. And so we're going to line those up for you um, today. But before we get into that, why don't we talk a little bit about our own experiences at uh, IPS 2012? Sure. Um, so I'll just tell you some of my highlights from yeah. the trip. Uh, well, uh, first of all, I, w- I was really impressed with uh, the quality of research that was presented there, especially the uh, cognition sessions, which... Um, was my area of interest. Um, I thought the plenaries were good, especially for me, the Professor Matsuzawa plenary, I thought went really well. Yeah, it must have been a bit of a highlight for you as a former student of, of Matsuzawa Sensei's mm-hmm. to be able to see him give a plenary there. So what was his talk about? Uh, well, he ran through a lot of the um, history of the I project and Japanese primatology and um, also... I don't think so. A lot of what he talked about, of course, you can check yourself on our intro, our first introduction podcast. Uh, I want to make a correction. It's not the introduction cast, but our first interview installment. Our first interview installment was with Professor Matsuzawa. Yeah, and he does and give a, a very broad overview. That's right. Um, so he talked about that, and then also recently, uh, the biomedical industry in Japan stopped using chimpanzees for research largely uh, as a result of his efforts that's right he had to announce that that's yeah that was a very very important step and he had a very active role in that decision Mm -hmm. or the years leading up to that decision that's right so now there are no more biomedical invasive uh, research programs in japan on chimpanzees right uh, as of this summer really okay Okay, so yeah, that was a good plenary. And, um, and before you go on, actually, yep. some of the other plenaries as well, uh, I didn't, I, unfortunately, I didn't get to all of them, but um, one of the, the themes that was running through this year's Congress was highlighted in the very first plenary uh, by Filippo O'Reilly, who mm-hmm. talked about this kind of fission-fusion dynamics and the importance of understanding uh, variability, basically, in the levels of group cohesion across primate species. And it kind of has a lot of important impl- implications to the evolution of social systems, including humans. And you could see that throughout the conference, there was a lot of different uh, talks, for example, that were, were touching upon these these important questions and kind of what basically what is the nature of grouping in primates? And mm-hmm. that, you know, comes anything from social behavior through navigation and decision making, decision making and uh, the emergence of leadership. So one of the one of the highlights for me was actually uh, a pair of talks done by Andrew King 
um, on the emergence of leadership and the importance of social networks in, mm. in group dynamics and grouping patterns. Okay. Oh, that's really interesting. So that would be your highlight then? Well, that, I mean, sure, that was one of the things I was interested in. Um, we should also mention the Lifetime Achievement Award this year was given to Dr. John Oates, mm-hmm. who basically spent a lifetime in Africa and has been a really important figure in, in African conservation of wildlife, particularly focusing on primates. And I remember as a, well, probably in my last few years of, of undergraduate study, going into my master's program, in which I started work in Africa, in Ghana, on the black and white colobus there. But I remember before that, I was really interested in, in his book, which had recently coming out, come out called Myth and Reality in the Rainforest, which was a really important work in conservation. And I think one of the important things about it, especially for younger people in the field, was that he very clearly stages all of the, the problems, so many of the problems inherent in conservation work. And, and it, it really is important because a lot of us, me at the time for sure, and even probably still now to a large degree, are, are basically naive about these situations. So it kind of brings us back to these armchair stages where we have a lot of great ideas about ways forward. But when you're actually out there in the front lines, there are so many obstacles. Right. Right. Of course, on the ground, it's a totally different That's story right. than think, thinking about it. Uh, and I think elsewhere. this Congress was, was good in that respect, too, not only for honoring him with that award, but also, um, you know, the the theme for this year's Congress was primatology's legacy and future challenges. Mm-hmm. And one of the main ones for that is really conservation of primates worldwide. Of course. And so there were a lot of interesting uh, symposia and just uh, general sessions on those topics as well. Mm-hmm. So and I, um, I think we talked about this while we were there a lot, that actually there weren't as many people at this conference as some of the past ones, uh, like, for example, the last one in Kyoto or right. Edinburgh before that. And that kind of came with its own pluses and minuses um but one one of the nice things was you kind of run into the same people over and over again yeah it was really nice it, it helped from a networking perspective mm-hmm. um you know in some of the previous congresses it was pretty difficult actually to meet people uh, without scheduling appointments yeah but here we we tended to congregate in the same areas particularly around coffee breaks but it was generally good for uh, for staying in touch with people during the congress right and for the sidecast booth because it was kind of central location yeah, it was. It was. And so it was nice to have people come by. Um, it was in the central area, as I mentioned earlier, and they were able to see what was going on and, and if they had any interest, be able to ask us questions about it. So I'm, I'm very happy uh, with the, the situation that we had there and with the Congress uh, overall. Mm-hmm. So, Andrew, what were you presenting about? So I had two things on my plate. First, I was giving a poster which was related to some of the work I started as a PhD student. Um, you know, I'm mainly interested in the relationships, ecological relationships between hosts and parasites. And one of the important questions is to investigate whether or not certain parasitic organisms do actually affect, let's say, the health status or the fitness of their hosts. And so one of the ways that I was attempting to do this, because it's not an easy question, was by involving kind of novel or relatively novel analytical tools, one of which being fractal analysis. And so in this poster, I was presenting some data that showed that when we use these these novel approaches to investigating behavior, we can distinguish between the behavior of, let's say, animals in a normal, if such a thing exists, health state versus those animals in some kind of abnormal, abnormal or challenged condition. And so the research so far with primates, but as well as other species, so one of the other species I'm working with or group of species is penguins, shows mm. that 
when those animals or individual animals are faced with some type of challenge, then we can actually distinguish between their behaviors, the behavioral signatures as they occur through time by using tools such as fractal analysis. And so those were the data I was presenting, I were, uh, which got some interest. Uh, this was your poster. This was the poster. So I think two of the, the more interesting comments I got were, wow, this is really cool. I love penguins. And the second is, I think this is the first time I've ever seen chaos theory used at a primatological congress. Well, clearly they weren't at the last primatological conference because <laughs> you gave a talk right, about a chaos topic. theory there last time in Kyoto. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, I had fun doing that. And then the second um, thing that I was doing was presenting work on the role of social networks in the transmission of parasitic organisms between individuals in a wildlife setting. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about this is my research mainly focused on focuses on parasitic nematodes and traditionally we think of their main mode of transmission being you know host uh, cont contamination of the environment for example from which hosts will pick up new infections via ingestion so we call it the fecal oral route but what my data are showing is that the actual social network or social interactions uh, based on the grooming contact structure within the group can actually facilitate or appear to facilitate um, transmission of these organisms as well so that's if they're if they're taking organisms physically off of another conspecific while they're grooming them and then ingesting it? It's a possibility. It's a possibility we'd like to explore, but obviously the logistics of actually testing that directly are quite difficult. Mm -hmm. But at least what the patterns show is that there is a strong link between the network connections of certain individuals and their current infection status. And so, for example, my research shows that individuals that are more central to these networks actually do end up with higher levels of infection with certain parasitic species. And so that's kind of interesting, to my knowledge, one of the first studies to come out with, uh, with this type of information. Of course, networks have always or long been known to be important to the transmission of, of other and probably more pathogenic species of, of parasites, such as viruses and things. Um, but with parasitic nematodes, this is kind of a, a novel ground, so I'm excited to explore that further. Hmm, that's interesting, and it fits in well to what you were talking about earlier about the focus and at this conference on group formation and group dynamics. That's right. So everybody at this conference was typically talking about the importance of, let's say, social networks or social relationships for the formation of bonds and the coherence of group structure and things like that. But on the flip side, you know, not uh, not all types of information that do flow between these individuals uh, based on the social networks is good. We also have the trade-off uh, during which, let's say, parasitic organisms or other pathogens can also be transmitted between individuals as well. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's really cool. And so how about yourself, Chris? You were, you were also busy. I was not as busy as you. I just gave uh, one presentation. It was an oral presentation on some of my chimp research. Recently, I developed a new experimental paradigm, uh, which involves social tasks for chimps on touch panels so it's kind of a, a new way of using the touch panel so can you tell us a little bit about your experimental design here sure it's i know you exciting. like the name of my setup i i named it the arena it's one multi-touch monitor that spans between two separate booths so that a chip in each booth can participate in a social task on a shared task on the same touch panel um so the first way that we used the arena was uh, on a task that the chimps were very familiar with beforehand, which was just a numeral sequencing task, um, which they've been doing for 
their well for the younger chimps for their whole lives and, and for the adult chimps for a couple decades so uh, they're very familiar with touching numerals in ascending order on a touch panel so we just took that task and put it on the arena so that two chimpanzees would have to kind of coordinate together to count the numerals so one chimp would touch the number one and then the other one would touch the number two and then a lot of issues like turn taking and patience and coordination could be examined um yeah so it was a fun experiment to run and i enjoyed presenting it yeah i think there was a lot of interest for sure it was a good presentation so one of the factors that you focused on was basically proof of concept so you wanted to show that the chimps actually could do that task Mm -hmm. together that's right. So as I said before, they knew how to do uh, numerical sequencing and ordering, um, so, and they had learned how to do that in an individual context. So we were interested in if they could kind of adapt their skills from an individual context into a novel social context, which maybe required some more sophisticated um, performance traits like turn-taking and, and waiting and patience. And uh, interestingly, we found that the half of the subjects could do that spontaneously without any training. They understood what the task involved from the beginning. And the other three learned very quickly. The other half, uh, there's six subjects, so three yeah. and three. The other half of the group learned very quickly. So it was not very hard for the chimps to learn how to do this um, task together. But one of the interesting things you show that there was some kind of a difference between, let's say, the mothers and their offspring. That's right. So the offspring are, in general, better at doing the task with their mothers than uh, vice versa. Um, and that goes for their performance levels as well as the amount of time it takes them to touch the numerals. After their mother has touched the numeral, it takes them less time to mm-hmm. touch the, the uh, subsequent numeral than if they had touched it and their mother touches the subsequent. So what do, what do you think is driving that? Um, well, I think it kind of paints a very classic picture of um, social information flow in primates, which is just that the um, offspring are more likely to pay attention to their uh, mothers than vice versa, because obviously they need to, uh, they're in position of learning skills from their mothers, but you don't really have mothers learning skills from their infants. Sure. So yeah. Sure, less likely the other way around. Mm-hmm. And so what do you think is the future of this? I mean, the arena is really new. Right. A lot of advantages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, it's it's a new setup. It's an extension of a touch panel paradigm, which has been very successful uh, and, and very good at studying chimp behavior in a very precise manner using things like response latencies and many, many trials. So this is kind of a new uh, way to study chimp social learning and behavior and... I'm personally interested in things like game theory, so there's a lot of applications there. Cool. Well, congratulations on a good talk. Yeah, thanks. And let's get into our interviews. Yeah. Okay. So as we mentioned earlier, we we did a series of interviews here at IPS 2012. Mm -hmm. Um, To be exact, there were seven. Right. And before we present each one, we'll we'll go through a little bit of a rundown of who we're going to be talking to. But at this point, I would just like to introduce all seven so that the listeners will have an idea of who's coming up. So we started, um, I'll just go in order, with Amanda Moline, and then we rolled through Michael Wasserman, we've got Stephen Shapiro, treasurer of IPS, and we've got Jorge Martinez Contreras, who was the organizer of the conference this year, or co-organizer, followed by Sarah Zodi, currently a postdoc at Emory, Tilo Nadler, an important conservationist in Vietnam, and Rob Schumacher, who's at Indianapolis Zoo. 
And so I think we should probably get right into these interviews. Right. And before each interview, we'll, we'll describe their position and their topic of research and then just get right into it with them. Yeah. And so I guess we should start with Amanda Moline. So Amanda and I have a little bit of a history because we're both graduates of the University of Calgary. Mm-hmm. So I was happy at IPS this year to see a number of my old colleagues from there. And uh, as I was a graduate student back, this is 11 years ago now, I think she was just finishing her undergrad work, but she did go on to do a PhD at the University of Calgary, and she's currently a postdoc at Dartmouth College in the Domini Lab. And so she's going to be talking about the work that she presented at IPS and how that fits into her broader research topics. And so here's Amanda. I'm giving a talk in the Genes and Behavior Symposium, and um, the topic of my talk is going to be uh, visual pigments in tree shrews and opossums. And I'm using tree shrews and opossums as an extant model for um, early primates. Okay, so I assume the end of that is kind of how it fits into your broader perspective. <laughs> exactly, here, yeah. So. I'm, I'm grateful to the symposium organizers for inviting me to talk about an animal that's no longer considered to be a primate, although <laughs> in the 60s, tree shrews uh, were considered to be primates. So, okay. yeah, they're, they're close relatives. They, um, they fall out with primates and colugos, which are flying lemurs, members of Yorkonta. Okay. And they look a lot like some of the earliest fossil primates are projected to have looked. So because of their close relationship and also because of the similarities in body size and potentially diet as well, um, they're a good model for extant or extinct or early primates. And likewise, um, opossums, specifically uh, woolly opossums from Central America, are also convergent on an ecological niche that is similar to what early primates were thought to occupy. So um, most most of the work that's been done looking at these models of early primates is focused on the grasping and the um, habitats where they might be um, climbing around on terminal branches and, and the evolution of hands that can actually be really mobile and grab onto things. But I'm interested in looking at them as models for the visual ecology. And uh, that's kind of my broader topic is how um, primate vision has evolved and what the selective pressures are that have shaped it. Okay. Primates are quite unique among mammals. There are a lot of interesting things going on in their visual systems. Okay, and so specifically in your talk, mm-hmm. that you're, when are you speaking? Uh, Thursday at noon. Thursday at noon. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a brief preview of? Yeah. So um, I'm really interested in looking at opossums and tree shrews uh, to answer some of the unanswerable questions in primatology, or at least answers we don't have just yet. Um, one of the interesting mysteries is that some nocturnal primates have completely lost all color vision, while other ones seem to be um, really focusing on, you know, there's been selective pressures maintaining their color vision. We see um, balance, or purifying selection acting on the genes that code for the different visual pigments, and presumably they have dichromatic color vision, which is, um, you know, similar to most mammals. And it's really unusual to think about a nocturnal animal having color vision because it's, you know, what we think to be pitch black and being in the cone cells which are typically used under light conditions, you know, um, we don't understand it. So one of the hypotheses has been that um, color vision is indicating that this animal came from a diurnal ancestor. It's just this functionless vestige that's continued to persist. And primates that have been nocturnal for longer have now lost the one of the color vision genes and are totally colorblind. Whereas animals that still maintain dichromacy, it just hasn't been lost yet. So 
presumably um, you can estimate how long an animal's been, the lineage has been nocturnal by whether their color vision is still functional or not. So that's one of the questions I'm using these, um, these animals to look at. And uh, a sneak preview of the results is that in the um, woolly opossum, which is nocturnal, um, it looks like it has maintained functional dichromacy. And they've been nocturnal for a very long time. In the tree shoes, I'm looking at both nocturnal and diurnal members. And um, I'm not quite finished all of my genetics work on the nocturnal member, but early indications seem that it's lost its color vision. And so here we have two different cases, and you know, one still has color vision and one doesn't. So. The answer is, is that they're not telling us much about what was going on in primates, and it's still kind of a, an open, an open question. Very fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. So, I want to go back a little bit, maybe. Yeah. But can you tell us a little bit about your connections to Japan? Maybe some of the listeners might be interested in that. But you did some of the work there. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I have a long-term collaboration with um, Dr. Shoji Kawamura at the University of Tokyo, and he's actually the one who gave me all of my molecular genetics training. We've been working on um, a different type of visual uh, system, that of uh, New World monkeys. They've got some polymorphisms in their visual system, leading to some having trichromatic color vision and some having dichromatic. And, um, and I'm continuing to collaborate with him on this tree shrew research. So I, um, I've been to Japan working in his lab on five separate occasions, and now at Dartmouth I'm working in the Domini lab, but I continue to have lots of conversations with Kamara Sensei about you know, different primer design and functions. And on a unrelated note, my mom lives in Japan, and so oh, wow. we've got a, a personal connection there as well. We always go over to visit her. Okay, very cool. That's great. <laughs> yeah, please come to PRI if you ever come to Japan. Oh, yeah, I would yeah, love to. Sure. Thank you. That invitation. We might have an extended version of this in the cool. future. Cool. Yeah, that would be more great. Detail. So any final thoughts on future prospects? Where do you go from here? Um, so that's a good question. I would like to expand my research to include other sensory modalities and specifically I'm interested in looking at interactions between visual and olfaction and I'd like to continue to use tree shoes and primates to answer some of those questions. Okay, that's the end of our first interview. I want to apologize. We had some technical difficulties with the microphone. The interview did go on longer, but we did cut a little short. Yeah, so listeners might notice a difference, but from this point on, the rest of the interviews were actually conducted with our mobile podcasting device um, mm -hmm. rather than the microphone setup that we had. Now, the next interview that we did conduct was with Dr. Michael Wasserman, and he is currently a Tomlinson postdoctoral fellow at McGill University, and he's working with Dr. Colin Chapman. And I had the privilege of meeting Mike a couple years ago at the last IPS in Kyoto, and I was really interested in his research because he's looking at the importance of phytoestrogens uh, that to the behavior and ecology of the primates that are feeding on those plants from which they actually get them. And so he's going to be talking about that in the upcoming interview. So I'm here to present results from my dissertation work that I did at UC Berkeley on uh, the presence of uh, phytoestrogens in the red colobus monkey diet. Mm -hmm. So I did my field work in Kibale National Park in Uganda. And what I did, I did an 11-month study of um, their behavior, focusing on feeding behavior as well as some social behaviors, um, and collected plant items, mm -hmm. so the foods that they were eating, and screened those plant items for estrogenic activity. Also collected fecal samples to look at their hormone levels, mm -hmm. and then looked at whether the hormone levels were changed in response to eating the estrogenic plants. Okay. So I'm presenting the results from that study. Can you give us a taste of what those results are? So, um, in brief, uh, basically, there was one plant that's closely related to soy, and soy is actually probably the plant that's had the most focus on 
the fact that it has estrogenic activity, since it's so um, prevalent in the diets of um, people around the world. Right. And this um, Miletia dura was the young leaves. That's the plant that the red colobus were eating that had estrogenic activity. And when they ate it, it um, at least in the adult males, so I was looking at hormonal data from adult males, um, when they eat this plant, both their estradiol levels and cortisol levels uh, increased. Okay. So, so how, what kind of an effect might that have? Well, so then I also, as I said, we collected um, some social behavior data as well. And so um, what it looks like is happening is when they eat these plants, they can um, alter their rates of grooming and aggression and mating. Um, but more important to that is just the endogenous hormonal state. Right. So um, other factors are going to influence hormone levels and um, whatever those factors may be levels of estradiol and cortisol are important to those social behaviors. So what's kind of the big picture then of that? So the Where next step from here? Um, I think the, to me what the most interesting thing is that really until this study we didn't know whether wild primates were consuming these types of plants and, um, and if they were having any effect. So the next step is, so we've seen in the red colobus they are eating estrogenic plants. I also screened the diet of the mountain gorillas in collaboration with Jessica Rothman, who's a professor at Hunter College, Mm -hmm. and found that they are eating one plant that has estrogenic activity. And so the next step is to broaden out and look at um, other primates in Kibali. So Kibali is well known for having a high diversity of primates living in the forest, so which makes a nice uh, study site for looking at um, species that fill different dietary niches in the forest. And so I'm going to be screening the diets of these other primates, and then also in collaboration with other scientists at sites um, in Latin America and Asia, screening diets of primates living there as well. So, so it's to take a phylogenetic approach and look at um, exposure to phytoestrogens across the primate phylogeny is the ultimate goal. So what kind of predictions might you have about that? What would you expect to find by looking at such a broad so array of primates? There's a couple of hypotheses about why... Um, plants produce these compounds, and one is the plant defense hypothesis. So the idea being that because they, they're estrogenic, they have potential to alter fertility, and by doing so, they could suppress the fertility of herbivores, so it could be potentially a plant defense mechanism. And if that's the case, then you would expect folivores to be interacting with such plants more frequently than frugivores, since um, if it was a plant defense, the plant would put these compounds in their leaves and not their fruits, since right, they want right, their fruits right, to be eaten right. for seed dispersal. And they don't want their leaves to be eaten since they're important for photosynthesis. Okay. Um, so, alternatively, there's also the self-medication hypothesis that maybe they're providing some kind of benefits to primates, uh, or what I call a neutral hypothesis, where it's just a biochemical coincidence that there's estrogenic activity, and it really doesn't have, you know, the plant's not producing it for any reason regarding herbivores or primates. And the primate's just not eating it for the phytoestrogens. It's just eating it because it wants something else in there that's good, like protein. Right, right. It's a coincidental um, energy. Yeah. So, um, so if that's the case, then I expect that you would find primates across the phylogeny eating these plants, especially since in my study, one, one of the plants was a legume, one was a fig, it was estrogenic. And legumes and figs are important to primates pretty much you know, across the tropics. Okay, well, very interesting stuff. Thanks for joining us here. I just want to add uh, one last thing. If anybody out there has samples that they're interested in sending to Michael, I'm sure he'd be interested. That would be great. I'm actually looking to, you know, I have a number of sites right now, but I'm looking to expand and and screen plants from 
everywhere possible. So. All right. Well, you heard his information, so contact him there. And thanks for joining us here on the Primate Cast. Thanks a lot. So in our next interview, we're joined by Dr. Steve Shapiro, who's an associate professor of comparative medicine at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And he's also the chief of primate behavior and enrichment at that institute. And, and also, as we all know, treasurer of the IPS over the last 10 years. And that institute, it's a pretty big complex with a lot of chimps, and he does a lot of great work with enrichment on them. And last year, they had a bit of a scare. There was a wildfire, so I was able to hear from him about kind of how they were lucky that the chimps were okay and his house got saved from that wildfire in Bastrop. It's an interesting story. Yeah, it was really good. Unfortunately, we don't really talk about that in the That's podcast, true. but but thanks for that. And uh, what he will be mainly talking about is, is his work kind of in uh, enrichment, basically, in the research that's been going on there. I think his work and his center's work is kind of a leading, mm-hmm. uh, a leader in that area. Absolutely. And so let's get right into it. Here's Steve. Thanks for joining us on the Primate Cast. No problem. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about your center? Yeah, so um, we're part of the University of Texas system, and we're called MD Anderson Cancer Center. But we are the Department of Veterinary Sciences, and we're located about 140 miles from Houston, where the major cancer center is. And our place is basically the primate vivarium for the cancer center. And we have about 2,000 primates, 170 or so chimpanzees, a thousand SPF rhesus monkeys, about 500 squirrel monkeys, and 350 owl monkeys. So we're Those talking are, about impressive facilities then? Yeah, we have some pretty nice facilities. Um, our chimp facility began in about 1977, and um, our boss was named Mike Keeling. He was a chimpanzee vet, and he's the one who started the program. Uh, he was 10 years ahead of his time for his entire career. Unfortunately, he passed away about eight years ago. Our current chairman is Chris Abey, also a very behaviorally oriented veterinarian, which contributes significantly to the, the things that we're able to do. Okay. So we're pretty well known at this point for our behavioral management of the non-human primates in captivity. Okay. And so what kind of things are you focusing on there? The things we focus on are ways to um, both manipulate the environment that the animals are in in captivity and to measure the effects of those manipulations. So what we want to do, the reason we do it, two reasons. One is to improve the animal's welfare because we think we have a pretty good idea. We know their natural behavior. We have some ideas about how to stimulate natural behavior in captivity. And we figure if we do that, then um, the animals will be better models for biomedical research. So we're a biomedical research facility. Some of the animals we do a lot of biomedical research with, many we do very little. Mm-hmm. We have national research resources that mm-hmm. we maintain for research purposes, uh, for current research, and for perhaps future research needs as well. So again, what we're trying to do is manage the behavior of the animals, uh, perhaps uh, helping to better define them for experimental research, for uh, research projects, not really experimental research, but research projects. We figure if we know more about the models, fewer confounds will influence Mm -hmm. uh, the people's research, and you can more directly test your hypotheses with a better defined model. That's really Mm -hmm. what we're about, focusing on the behavioral components of it. So is that that kind of... um 
is that kind of program now spreading quite well throughout the United States? In there, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going to say that we are leaders. I'm a little full of myself, and we're a little full of ourselves. <laughs> but we like that here on the at, at our place. But um, I'm going to say that virtually every legitimate primate research center in the United States has a substantial behavioral management program. And there are some publications that have been survey research that have looked at all the different facilities. Okay. And lo and behold, you know, the findings show that quite a bit is being done. Quite a bit more than in the past, but hopefully quite a bit less than will be done in the future. Okay. So what is your group doing here at IPS this year? We're presenting a number of different things. So our, our specific research interests are at the moment in well and have been for a while, in positive reinforcement training procedures in order to give the animals control over their environment and the ability to make meaningful choices. So a lot of our work focuses on providing animals with choice. We, we figure that positive reinforcement training allows the animals to choose whether they participate or not. Uh, there's no punishment involved. You know, if you don't come and participate, nothing happens. We're particularly interested in figuring out ways for the animals to participate in their own care. So we have a number of different things that we're doing uh, right now. We have a very old colony of chimpanzees. Arthritis is kind of a big problem. We want the animals to be treated for their arthritis, their symptoms of arthritis. And we want the animals to uh, sort of control those treatments. So using our positive reinforcement training techniques, the animals are trained and voluntarily stationed at the front of the cage. And we have a veterinary acupuncturist hmm. who does acupuncture uh, on the proper meridians and what have you to help relieve some of the symptoms of arthritis in the animals. Okay, I got to ask. Successful? Uh -huh. We're not deep enough in it to really say successful and how would we measure success, that's the problem. That's right. Uh, one of the critical components, though, is, that, you know, to assess success is after the first treatment, will the animals come back for a second? The answer is yes. They'll come back for a third, fourth, fifth, fiftieth. That doesn't matter. Very interesting. Uh, the second thing is we train them initially using food as our positive reinforcer. But if relief of pain associated with arthritis is actually occurring as a function of the acupuncture, you would expect that over time the animals would no longer need food as a reinforcer. The symptom relief would be a reinforcer itself. And we're seeing that. We don't have to give them as many grapes to stay at the front as we used to. And, um, of course, the third is, you know, we're measuring their gait, their ability to move around, their mobility okay. score. But we haven't scored. I, I don't have analyses of those data. Okay. But that's where we're going. So we can look forward to it in the future. Then. Absolutely. And we're doing the same things with therapeutic lasers. So an acupuncture se session takes about 10 minutes. The animal remains still with the needles in it for 10 minutes, no problem. Uh, we have many animals that, you know, will do that. The great thing about therapeutic lasers is it takes 45 seconds for a treatment instead of 10 minutes. Wow. Again, the animals station at a particular point, a target, excuse me, and then they hold that target and we administer the laser to the affected joint. And again, you're going to ask me, is that successful? Uh, we don't, you know, they come back for it. Again, the same things that I said before, but it, we haven't made the full mobility assessments that are really necessary to get at this. And we have a third thing that we're doing, which is 
to me, very, very interesting. We give the animals two different arthritis medications in two different colors of Gatorade, not flavors, but colors. So for two months, they get one color. For two months, they get the next color. And since we're psychologists, we use an ABBA design, so we repeat it again. Mm -hmm. So after a total of eight months with one medication in red Gatorade, a different medication in blue Gatorade, we then give them a choice of the two Gatorades. So now they're choosing which medication they want to take. So our feeling is that they're participating in their own care. We're focusing on pain relief for arthritis at the moment, but I think you can see that uh, we could do it for high blood pressure, cardiac problems. Mm -hmm. Many of the animals are old, like I told you, and they have uh, substantial health problems, and these treatments make them better. And we have our measures of improved welfare as a function of the medications, but we're outsiders looking in, as Matsuzawa would say today, probably. <laughs> it's a little bit more important to see what the animals are saying about the treatments. Right. Not saying, thinking, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. So that, that's where we're headed. Okay. Sounds very interesting. Um, just to change topics a sure. little bit, sure. uh, maybe we could just close. If you could tell us a little bit about your impression of this year's IPS as the treasurer. Uh, well, as the treasurer, I'm disappointed in this IPS because we're going to lose money, and it's really the first time that Uh-oh. we've lost money while I've been treasurer of IPS at, at a meeting. Well, 10 years, I mean, it has to happen at some point. Uh, no, it doesn't, but okay. <laughs> you know, if that's the way you want Let to you think about it, that's fine. Um, but as far as organizational things, comfort, uh, the functioning of the computer equipment, all the other things that are critical to allowing an international audience to feel comfortable while they're here, focus on the issues at hand, not whether they're going to get coffee at coffee break time or have to walk Mm -hmm. 12 blocks to get to their hotel, these kinds of things. This is an exceptionally well-organized conference. The people, uh, the Mexican people on the ground, particularly Aralisa, have been absolutely outstanding. And uh, we're trying to figure out a way maybe we can integrate them into future conferences as uh, (laughs) an organizational team because they really did a super job. I think that's been the general consensus around here. It's Mm -hmm. been a nice conference. Well, Steve, thanks for joining us. Okay, no problem. It was a pleasure. We look forward to talking to you again. All right, man. Great. Thanks. So in our next interview, we're joined by Dr. Jorge Martinez Contreras, who's at the Universidad Autónoma Metropolitana where he's a professor of the philosophy of science and director of the Darwin Center for the Evolution of Thought. And now, he's also a co-president of this year's IPS organizing committee, along with Dr. Ernesto Rodriguez Luna. And he's going to be talking about what he did here at this year's IPS in terms of the history of primatology and philosophy of primatological science. And a side note is that his daughter, Laura Martinez, used to be a student here at PRI. She did her PhD here. Yeah, so we were we were good friends with Laura, and actually it was very nice that she was with us also in Mexico. Mm-hmm. We had a chance to catch up, find out what she's been up to. That's right. Okay, so without further ado, here's Jorge. So you happen to be giving a couple of talks here at IPS. Yes, year. I have already given them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm working on history of primatology and also what we call philosophy of primatology. Right. How uh, primatology, especially the scientific discoveries, have had an impact in Western thought, especially in philosophy. Right. I remember as an undergraduate, I learned a lot about Donna Haraway's work, yeah. the primate visions, and... Yeah, she studied a lot of the, you know, the social aspect of uh, primatology. Mm-hmm. 
and her book is wonderful. Mm -hmm. I am. I focus more on the history of uh, primatology and how several discoveries had, had an impact on philosophy, especially in what we call philosophical anthropology. Okay. The answer to the question: What means to be human? Okay. So what were you talking about here at IPS, well, the, specifically? The first talk was the 18th century knowledge of uh, primates, especially neotropical primates, mm -hmm. because it was in a, in a section for uh, neotropical studies. And I was uh, proposing to, to think something terrible. Just imagine some species had disappeared from the 18th century. Yes. And then uh, uh, suddenly they were rediscovered. So how accurate could have been the... They were quite, quite primitive, if you want. Uh, the naturalists didn't go to field work except Margravius or Margrave, yeah. which went to Brazil. Yeah. So they received the animals either alive or dead, and they uh, grasped information from travelers. Right. So they, they made a classification. So the Wikipedia at the time are books. They have photos, so they have to have drawings. And we are cleaning uh, Buffon's drawing, which uh, they are very old in the books, and we have cleaned them uh, through Photoshop. Yeah. So we are recovering the very nice images. I was very impressed by some of the images. Some of them are very nice likenesses of the species yes. that you think they represent, and some of them maybe more questionable? Yes, some, I think the questionable ones are done on death animals. Yeah. And what is very funny is the surroundings, because the yeah. background doesn't correspond to, yeah. to a jungle. So you think the animal was, was painted for itself. That was a very interesting talk. And what was the other? That you well, the other was precisely on the title of the, the whole symposium, the 24th symposium which is the, the history of primatology and the future challenges. And in this history of primatology, I uh, discuss three moments in the uh, Western discovery of uh, monkeys and apes. And one is very early, the Harrow's trip purple around uh, Northern Africa, where the word gorilla was established. And I was saying that uh, this word gorilla actually is a Wolof name used in Senegal uh, region, so I don't think I know went too far down in, uh, in Africa. And these uh, skins he brought to Carthage uh, lasted for seven, uh, three centuries, more than any actual animal. Wow. There are three skins, yeah. and the Romans destroyed the whole city and they buried it to the ground. But they were so impressed by the, by the parable that they preserved the Greek translation so we have already got it. Yeah. The second one was um, Battles account as a sailor prisoner of the Portuguese. And he mentions a, a great monster, which is called the Pongo, which doesn't stir, doesn't uh, accept to be stir in the eyes. So it was clearly a, a gorilla, was, and it has a great impact. But the, the species for this was discovered in 1847, so almost three centuries afterwards, after what happens. Uh, the other thing is in the 18th century, the, the, uh, the knowledge by Tyson that uh, chimpanzees are closer to humans than to other monkeys had a great, great impact. And Linnaeus was obliged to put the, 
the orangutans together with humans, the primates. Mm -hmm. Primates means primates, the first created mm -hmm. by Gore. Mm -hmm. And when they discover also the uh, the Hottentots uh, population, they try to explain what it means to be to be human in a the scientist in a non-racist uh, point of view. Although Linnaeus uh, has some racist considerations, uh, sure. thinking the the white people are the ones that think. And, uh, but uh, before no, before as Descartes thinks humans are the same everywhere because they have the same mind, they have reason, and whatever the body you have, you have the, the, the reason. It's very funny because uh, the, the empirical tradition, on the contrary, thinks you are uh, becoming uh, human maybe by stages. So that's different considerations. Yeah. yeah. And the funny thing for me is that uh, even today. You have a dichotomy between those that think that to be human is something unique, comparable, and the rest of us who think that we are just another species, yeah. and we can learn from other yeah. even species and that species. Yeah. Okay, uh, I want to change topics just yes. a little bit. Um, so, sitting here with a philosopher of science, and particularly primatology, so when did you get interested in primatology I, specifically? I was, I was doing a research on, on Sartre, philosopher Sartre. I was something like 26 years old and I uh, read the Time magazine book on primates. Okay. And for me it was a revelation. So why I didn't change to become a primatologist then, I wasn't married, I was, I don't know, I was <laughs> afraid of this discovery. Yeah. And since then I have been fascinated by, by primates. And since I didn't do field work, I think that's one of the main reasons I, I focus on history. I'm very happy in doing history of primatology. Well, it's, and it's quite interesting because, of course, then your daughter yeah. joined the field of primatology. Yeah, that's, uh, there is a, you know, a psychoanalytical thing that says sometimes the children uh, accomplish the, the, the dreams of the, the, the parents. <laughs> maybe what happened I don't know I like it and of course she did her PhD with us in uh, the Primate Research Institute Primate in Japan research with Dr. Matsuzawa that's right and with the chimpanzees and so what was your first experiences with PRI and with Dr. Matsuzawa well uh, I, it was when I visited Laura okay. and I had a, a very a nice experience and I was very well impressed with the way the chimps are, are treated there and the ecosystem I mean they have Artificial, but it's a very complex ecosystem. And I was mentioning that Hanno, in his parable in Greek, says that these gorillas, which actually were chimpanzees, were kremnobats, kremnobates, which means court dancers. Okay. And it was in Inuyama for the first time in my life I've seen a, a, a chimpanzee walk on a court, very, very high. Yeah, like a tightrope. Tightrope. I, I was really, really impressed. <laughs> How history meets reality yeah, in the modern history way. meets reality, <laughs> and, and the things they're doing, the extraordinary thing is they have a, in uh, they have field studies together with captivity studies, right. with the same species. Yes. That is, I think it's unique. Yeah. In the yeah, yeah, that's always been one of uh, Professor Matsuzawa's ideas, as yeah, to bridge. I think it's I know they're going to do with the bonobos. So I think yeah, I'm really impressed. We hope for interesting things to come. 
Okay, so just maybe on a, a last note here, can you give us your impressions as organizer? What was your experience getting this conference together? Well, we have been working on this conference since four years, and we have learned from the previous conferences. We were uh, afraid of many things, and every, uh, everything we were afraid of uh, didn't happen. So the computers are working, the schedule is being kept, the well, things have turned okay. The problem we have is that uh, the, the news of Mexico are very bad, and as usually happens in the international news, they, they always tell the bad news. So right. this was going to happen in, in Veracruz. That's right. And we changed the, uh, Veracruz is more uh, a Mexican city. Cancun yeah. is more an uh, international city to yes. say something, but it's a very nice place, nice beach and everything. But um, this is not very objective. But I'm very happy because I have the impression everything is going okay. We had had wonderful communications. That was our conference was wonderful. Yeah. Rob's conference for historical dermatology. Very interesting, wasn't it? Extraordinary. So I'm very happy. Uh, but you have to ask the rest of the Well, <laughs> the uh, feedback that I've been getting about the conference is also very positive. I mean, people have been very... Uh, satisfied with the ease of getting around to the different talks and like you said for the most part the talks have been on time and we're just very happy to be here in Mexico oh, Mexico. Mexico. so I'd like to congratulate congratulate you Jorge on the thank you. Thank you very successful much, Congress thank you very much and thanks for joining us okay thank you very much <laughs> so in our next interview we're going to speak with Dr. Sarah Zodi now she's about to start a postdoc at Emory University with Dr. Tom Gillespie and she's also fresh off a PhD from the University of Helsinki and one of the things we're going to be talking about in this interview is, is her work that is quite interesting to me on a professional level because she was investigating also social networks and parasite transmission in her study system, which is mouse lemurs in Madagascar. So here's Sarah. Um, so I actually gave a talk about a small project I did painting lice with nail polish and tracking them on a population of mouse lemurs. It's very impressive, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. I loved it. It was fun to do. Um, and I was also co-chairing a symposium on primate aging. And so we had speakers talking about long-term data sets from all different taxa, like gibbons and murakees and mouse lemurs. Yeah. Okay, so I'll get to the second part in a second. I want to go back to the first one. So this actually got a lot of press when the, the study came out recently. <laughs> yeah. So can you give us just the, the general idea of what that was about? Yeah, so mouse lemurs are these tiny nocturnal primates, and they're pretty impossible to follow in the forest. I've tried. If you've ever tried following a very tiny, fast primate in the rainforest, you know that you'll fall off cliffs frequently. <laughs> um, and... It was just it was difficult to get a good idea about social interactions in this population that I've been studying for years. Um, and we began just by looking at their parasites and describing them. And once we found that they had these sucking lice, we decided to exploit the natural history of the sucking lice because they can only move from one individual to another via direct contact. Mm -hmm. So I decided, why track the lemurs when I can track the lice? It's much less work. They Brilliant. do all the work for me. <laughs> so it was, it was very exciting the first time a, a lemur came back with a louse that wasn't theirs. I mean... It was screaming in the jungle. It, it must have so just much. validated your whole idea. Yeah, it was wonderful. And then, like, beyond that, it gave us information about how far parasites transfer in the wild. And that was 
it was very exciting to me. I love parasites. And so, and so can you give us an idea then of just a, a brief summary maybe of the results of that study? Yeah, so we actually found that only the male mouse lemurs were exchanging lice, and, and it only happened really during the breeding season. Before, the, le- the lemurs had lice, but they didn't exchange them back and forth. Um, and beyond that, um, beyond that, the males were were uh, harboring like lice every developmental stage of the louse's life cycle on their testicles, kind of suggesting that the testicles are an important breeding ground. So was that expected? No, not at all. Because I previously I'd only ever seen the lice on the ears and occasionally on the testicles, but I never looked to see if there would be an egg and an instar and an adult male and an adult female. So that was exciting. Um, but I think. You know, personally, one of the coolest results was finding the, the two lemurs in the population really responsible for giving everyone lice. That was, it was really exciting Everybody's to know friend. that. Yeah, exactly. They really get around. <laughs> so it was, it was a very fun study, and it told me so much about these animals that I just, you know, saw for a few minutes at a time every night. No, it's a very, very clever way to approach a number of different problems. Thank so you. I was very excited to see that. Thank and, you very much. And just briefly, maybe about this aging symposium. Yeah. So actually, my dissertation research was about aging in mouse lemurs in the wild because in captivity they develop all of these human-like aging symptoms, like almost an Alzheimer's-like disease after the age of five. So I just wanted to see how old they live to be. And we found that they're living up to nine, like well past the captive age of senescence. Wow. Um, And so to sort of put that in a broader context of primate aging, we put together this symposium uh, with Uta Radishpiel from Hanover the symposium inviting speakers with long-term data sets to see what's happening out there in other primates and how long are they living and, and what are some of the age-related changes that occur okay. in those primates. Okay. And so where does Sarazoti go from here? I'm actually moving to Emory next week to start a postdoc, um, and I'm very excited about it. I, as I mentioned, I love parasites, and for this postdoc, we'll be looking at zoonotic transmission of diarrheal diseases, uh, waterborne diarrheal diseases in Madagascar. Okay. So we're looking at livestock, humans, endemic animals, everything. Every, everything in the forest. Everything in the so. forest. So then we'll have to look forward to everything, everything. from you in the future. <laughs> Thank you. I'm excited to do everything. Okay. Well, right. thanks for joining us here on the Primate Cast, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Thanks, you too. And we'll talk to you next time. All right. In our next interview, we're going to speak with Dr. Tilo Nadler. And this will be interesting because recently you went to Vietnam, which is where he works. I did visit Tilo. So he's with the Frankfurt Zoological Society and representative of Vietnam. But I visited him at the Endangered Primate Rescue Center, which he helped found, uh, I think, something like 20 years ago now. Uh, And that's a really amazing place. They bring in primates from Vietnam. There's a really high biodiversity of primates in Vietnam. And unfortunately, the majority of them are highly endangered. I think five of the top 25 most endangered primates in the world are found in Vietnam. And so the nice thing about his center, in in addition to, you know, rehabilitating and providing a, a location for some of these displaced primates to live, we actually have a great opportunity to see some of the world's most endangered and rarest primates. And so that was really an eye-opening experience for me. And that's something that people can look forward to at the next IPS, which is in Vietnam. They can go and see those primates for themselves. That's right. I think that Tila will probably have a hand in organizing that conference as well. And I definitely encourage all of our listeners, if you have an opportunity to visit 
the EPRC. It was really, really a great experience. Um, and in addition to his really impressive conservation work in Vietnam and also in relate, relation to it, he's also the editor of a journal that he himself set up, which is the, the Vietnamese Journal of Primatology. And he'll talk a little bit about that in this interview as well, some of the reasons leading up to his, uh, his involvement in that and development of that program as well. So here's Tilo. Here he is. So what are your impressions of the Congress so far? Uh, the Congress is like every second year uh, uh, meeting of a, of a great family from, <laughs> <laughs> from, from all uh, continents around the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course it, it is very impressive to contact with, with colleagues from somewhere else to discuss about uh, the problems around mm-hmm. the primates and uh, for my work especially about conservation of the primates. Okay, so what were you, what were you specifically doing here? I saw you had a presentation uh, about Vietnamese... I had a presentation primates. about uh, the reintroduction of Delacour linguos. This is a critical endangered primate species endemic to Vietnam and uh, of course only in a very small restricted area in Vietnam and uh, like uh, this one many other Vietnamese primate species are now under big trouble and uh, we try to support conservation for the highly endangered primate species. I I was very impressed I had the opportunity to visit Vietnam earlier this year and uh, the opportunity to see this Delacour Langer at, at Van Long um, Park there, and it was just an extremely impressive opportunity. But uh, it also is quite sad as well to think about how few of them there are left in the wild. This is right. Vietnam has a very high biodiversity and especially also a very high number on primate species, 25 in, right. in total. But um, the dark side that uh, a high number is endangered or critically critically endangered. We have seven critically endangered species, nine endangered species, seven vulnerable and only two with lower risk. It means more than 90% of the Vietnamese primates are threatened with the brink of extinction. So how does your EPRC fit into this then? We found it the Endangered Primate Rescue Center in 1993. It was the first rescue center in whole Indochina and uh, the, also the first, uh, still the first, uh, the only rescue center which focused on highly endangered primate species. Mm-hmm. And uh, the background or the intention, the idea was to provide a home for confiscated endangered uh, species or confiscated uh, individuals from endangered primate species and uh, later on to start with breeding programs for this uh, critical and critical endangered and endangered species for reintroduction programs. Okay. And so this center also attracts a number of visitors um, both both internationally and domestically. So have you seen over your tenure in Vietnam now, which is how many years? 20 years. 20 years. <laughs> so have you seen over this time uh, an impact on conservation efforts and the attitude towards nature and primates in Vietnam? The endangered uh, primate rescue center is uh, 
relatively close to Hanoi. It's only 130 keys, it means two and a half hour car drive. And uh, therefore we have a lot of visitors. It's also located in a very famous national park. This national park has about 80,000 visitors a year and it's a primate center about 10%. It means seven yeah. to 8,000 visitors yeah. a year. And uh, we use also the center as an education project. It means education for students, for normal tourists, for school, school, school children. We have contact with several schools in Hanoi. And uh, every year we, we have also, we carry out training programs for students. Yeah, it was a really nice setup. So I would very much encourage anybody listening, if they're ever in the area, to go check out the EPRC. For example, the next IPS. Yes, that's right. So the next IPS will be in Hanoi. I think so, that the uh, Endangered Primate Rescue Center is a uh, hotspot for the, for the <laughs> next, uh, for the next uh, Primate Congress in Hanoi 2014, because uh, we keep now 150 individuals in our center, in 15 taxa, and six of them nowhere else in another facility. It means wow. so you have the only chance to see this species in our rescue center. You have uh, the possibility to see some of these uh, highly endangered species now, also in the wild, because uh, we run also several uh, protect, protection programs in, in, in the field. So, but uh, of course, it's every time a question to see to see if you have if you spend only one or two days to see really the species in a wild but in a rescue center you have the chance to see all these species. That's great. Okay so can you give us an impression perhaps of what's next? What's next for EPRC? What's next for conservation of primates in Vietnam? What's next for Tilo Nadler? Of course we try to continue our work. It means to uh, try to reduce the illegal wildlife trade in Vietnam through uh, cooperation with uh, force protection departments, with, with police and with uh, government authorities, and uh, also through education programs. We had uh, just now, last month, about five TV shows to uh, give information about uh, the value or the, the variety of Vietnamese primates and the problem is conservation of this uh, especially endemic uh, species and uh, for the center we continue with our successful breeding programs and try to find a place for this uh, species in a wild. It means uh, to reintroduce species back into the wild. But this is, this is a long way. First, we have to establish a small, stable population in captivity. And uh, the biggest problem, it makes, reintroduction makes an, actually only sense if you have a safe area. Yeah. And uh, this, this is a problem, is this, uh, uh, poaching is very widespread in Vietnam. It's very common. Law enforcement is very weak to not existent. So it means we have first to find one suitable area to release the animals and then 
we have to make sure that there is no poaching in this area and uh, the reintroduced uh, individuals have really a peaceful life. <laughs> well, we definitely wish you the best of luck in that. Um, I just want to ask one last question, perhaps, about the, your journal, the Vietnamese Journal of Primatology. So, I think this is a, a wonderful idea, but I wonder if for you, this is an opportunity to encourage young researchers in Vietnam as well to really get an interest and have an outlet to talk about their primate research within the country. The idea to start with the Vietnamese uh, Journal of Primatology was actually to provide a platform for uh, research in Vietnam. It means also for young Vietnamese uh, researchers and uh, also to spread information about uh, Vietnam primates uh, around and uh, of course foreign, uh, foreign researchers also very very welcome to work in Vietnam and uh, Vietnam was uh, actually in the past underrepresented in uh, scientific research through yeah. all these uh, war troubles and uh, the uh, closed uh, country policy after the war but now uh, primatology in, in in Vietnam is actually a very active field and we try to encourage also biologists and, and students to work on this field. Okay. Well, Tilo, thanks for joining us here. Thank it's, you so much. It was Welcome. a pleasure to speak with you. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of the Congress. Thank you very much. I will do. And we hope to see you in Vietnam soon. <laughs> I hope so. All right. All the best. Our next and final interview is with Dr. Rob Schumacher. Yeah, and so this one was kind of interesting for you, Chris. I know you have a big interest in, well, both developing and continuing research in the zoo system. That's right. I am very interested in the zoo system in America and Japan, and Rob works at a really great zoo. He's got a great program and a long history of, of working with some of the smartest orangutans uh, in, in captivity. He has developed touch panel tasks for them, and so that's of interest to me. Uh, right now he's working at Indianapolis Zoo, um, and his research partners are these group of uh, group of orangutans, uh, specifically AZ, who he's been working with for, I think he said, 30 years, and has kind of gone with him from place to place. And so, yeah, it was great to sit down with him and talk about his new research program that he's recently started at Indianapolis Zoo. Yeah, we have great, great opportunities for uh, comparative research with a variety of species or non-comparative with individual species. And some of the really notable ones we have, in addition to orangutans, are um, uh, a large uh, pod of dolphins, a uh, mm -hmm. big herd of African elephants, uh, sea lions. Um, uh, I, I think probably what I'm told is the smartest animal in the zoo is uh, our female walrus. Right, I met the uh, walrus yeah, when I visited. She's, uh, she's I remember smart. the photos on Facebook. Yeah, she's, she's really pretty remarkable. Um, and uh, it's probably not a surprise to tell, tell people that um, walrus are uh, uh, dramatically understudied in terms of their cognitive abilities. I, I'm not sure there's one publication on walrus cognition. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a very exciting place for me to be. Um, I mean, academically, I'm an evolutionary biologist, but my interest is in cognition, and right. so I, I think it's a very exciting place to be, and the diversity of, of animals here is remarkable. Right, and one thing that really surprised me was this is the only zoo in the U.S. that has dolphins. 
Uh, we're not the only zoo. We're not the only zoo in the U.S. that has dolphins, but it's very, it's very, very rare. rare. Yeah, it's a, so it, most cities have an aquarium for dolphins. That's right. And a zoo that's for right. Land that's right. Yeah, the the closest one to us that has dolphins is the Brookfield Zoo okay. um, uh, in Chicago, but um, it's it's very rare for for zoos to have a, a major focus like that. Usually, yeah. it's quite divergent with an aquarium that would have obviously fish and then dolphins, maybe some other marine mammals. Um, but we're invested very, very heavily in marine mammals at the zoo, and it's it's a great thing. It's a real privilege to be around dolphins and work with them. Of course. Um, so one of the things that I got really excited about when I visited Indianapolis Zoo is this new orangutan enclosure yep. that you're working on. So yep. can you talk a little bit about sure. that? Sure. The, the great news is we, we break ground uh, on September 4th on, on this new facility. This will be uh, a very large uh, facility devoted exclusively to orangutans. And the, 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 the idea behind it, the, the purpose behind it is really simple, um, is we want people to really... Um, I don't know how else to say it. We want people to fall in love with orangutans. We want them to understand and learn about orangutans in, in all ways. We want them to understand um, their natural history. We want them to understand how they behave with each other. We want them to understand their intelligence. Um, and all of it is, is with the intention of focusing on orangutan conservation in the wild. I mean, uh, you know, the predictions for, for wild orangutans are, are, are really gloomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the numbers that have been lost are staggering. So what we really want to do is is give people enough information so that they understand orangutans well enough that they'll be compelled to care about their conservation in the wild. Um, it, it's set to open for visitors in 2014, um, uh, but we'll move in uh, with the apes uh, well before that to get them used to the facility. And so the I think the it's probably better to call it a complex rather than a facility. It'll have right. several buildings associated with it, um, several outdoor spaces, um, and, and really complex indoor space. And the whole idea is the apes can really socialize in the way they do normally, mm-hmm. where males spread out and don't have to interact with each other. Uh, females spread out and decide which male they want to be with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe they want to be alone. That's the other thing that we want to facilitate. And then, of course, for my particular interests, um, we have a, a essentially a studio or a lab right in, built into the, the, the main part of the um, complex um, where the apes can participate in all kinds of tool tasks, cognitive tasks, computer touch screens, and so on. And we'll do that um, right in front of visitors so that visitors have the chance to really appreciate what orangutans mm-hmm. can do and, and get a glimpse into how their minds work um, this isn't new for me. This is something I've done for a long time in my career. But um, the, the thing that really strikes me about it is it's it's overwhelming to people. They're mm-hmm. they're not expecting it. Right. And when they see what orangutans can do, for example, on a computer touchscreen, um, it it just redefines the apes for them in a yeah. really really positive way. So I'm very very excited about it. It's a it's a great great opportunity. I'm really looking forward to it. That's great. And I'm wondering if you could say a word about the orangutans themselves. Sure. So, for example, AZ. Sure, and, sure. We have um, research partner. Yep. Yeah, we have we have six orangutans um, uh, at the zoo now. Um, we'll probably have two or three others that will join them when we open the new facility. Um, but among those, um, we, we have a really interesting histories. Um, AZ, the the individual I've worked with the most, um, I've worked with him 
continuously now for almost 30 years, not not with cognitive research initially. I was really young, and I was working as a keeper at the National Zoo when I first met him when he was, I think, about six. Um, and um, But since um, the the mid-1990s, we've worked on cognitive research together almost continuously. That's really great. Um, yeah, we're, we're kind of a package deal. We just kind of go from place <laughs> to place together. So, um, And uh, uh, so he has extreme experience in cognitive testing and using a touchscreen computer and using written symbols, and he's done work with numbers and quantity and so on. And then we have um, the far other extreme, too. We have some individuals that uh, are from the entertainment industry, and They've actually never done anything associated with cognitive oh, research. So we're starting brand new with them. And um, the, the great thing is they're very interested and they're very engaged and they're picking it up very quickly. And then we've got everything in the middle. We've got some orangutans with a little bit of cognitive experience right. and using a computer and so on. So we've That's got really great. a little bit of everything and it's it's a wonderful wonderful group of individuals. Wow. It's, it's And, you know, young, old, male, female. It works really, really well. Great. Well, Good luck with your project. Thank you so much. Thank and, you so uh, much. Is there anything else that you want to mention that we haven't covered so far? If I can interject, sure. Sure. can you tell us a little bit specifically about what you're doing in IPS 2012? Sure. Um, you know, I think this is a this is the one meeting that I that I always like to attend. Um, I, I try not to skip it um, whenever possible, um, and I like very much the kind of the intersection of, of cognitive research, of course, from my own interest, plus social behavior, conservation, um, and all the updates from the field where, where, you're, where you're hearing from the people who are on the ground doing the work in the wild. Um, it, it, they have so much credibility, and, you know, I can maybe borrow a little bit of that credibility when I go back and report to my home institution or to people at the zoo, visitors who care about conservation. It's a wonderful opportunity, and at least for me, it seems as though um, this conference in, in Mexico this time has focused much more heavily on conservation than I recall at, at mm-hmm. previous conferences. And um, I really congratulate the organizers. That, that may be a reflection of um, how uh, challenging conservation is becoming in some areas, that it's that getting that much more focus. Um, but I'm really glad to see it, and it's been wonderful to sit through some of the plenary sessions on conservation and some of the individual papers. It's 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 been really a great opportunity for me. So it's it's been a wonderful meeting. I, I look forward to staying with these uh, meetings in the future. These congresses are terrific. Okay. And as we understand it, I hear there's another edition of your book coming out. It is. Thank you for mentioning that. I have a a book called Orangutans that came out a few years ago, and a second edition of that's coming out in 2013. Um, and then I recently had a book um, come out. The, the second edition of Animal Tool Behavior. First edition was in 1980, and so we, um, my co-authors and I, uh, went through and, and cataloged and analyzed the last 30 years of, of tool use in all species, but obviously primates are the majority of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, frankly, we uh, dramatically underestimated <laughs> how productive our colleagues had been. So it took us a lot longer than we thought, but we're really, really proud of it. And um, uh, uh, I think it's a great book. It's 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 terrific for people that are interested in primates because it it's the most up to date catalog of of tool use of all primates that's in existence right now. So oh, hopefully we'll update that a little sooner than thirty years, maybe in five or ten years. But uh, <laughs> no, that just came up. But thank you for asking about that. Great. We'll look forward to that for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much. So well, thanks thank for joining. Thank you di- so much. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. 
Well, that about wraps it up. It does indeed. A big thank you to all of our participants. Yeah, it was a great opportunity for us to come out to IPS, our first experience with the mobile podcasting unit. Uh, We think it was a success, so we definitely look forward to getting out there again. Absolutely. So stay tuned for future podcasts.